Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Hello, everybody. Hey, Nick. Hey, hey Nick. Seamus. Hey, hey Gail. How are you? Good hey, guys. You. What's How's up in going? Boston, man? It's been a good week. I appreciate it. You guys catch the last week's episode? Yeah, yeah. You know, last week was our first show of the new year, and we had Joe Linton on, and he talked about 2022 and the good things and bad things that happened in the cycling world. Nice. Yeah, that was good. Uh, I loved it. And it can be found at biketalk.org. Take it. Cool. Big time in Massachusetts, actually. We've had a hell of a week of just the first start of the new year. We got some new bike legislation signed by the governor. What was it? It is the Vulnerable Road User Bill, which designates cyclists, pedestrians, people in wheelchairs, people in micromobility as, quote, vulnerable users by definition. Which we already knew. Well, yeah, but now we can have statute built around it. Right. Very cool. Um, and that also is a four-foot passing for motorists around vulnerable road users. So we did not have that in Massachusetts, but now it's going to be codified and actually put into law. Mm-hmm. Um, we also got side guards on trucks that are leased and owned by the Commonwealth. So it prevents that right hook rollover, which has been a huge cause of fatal crashes. Probably about two-thirds of the fatal crashes in the state were caused by that. So state mandate for trucking modifications. This is all part of one bill, by the way. Um, we're going to have a standardized crash reporting for all vulnerable road users across the Commonwealth. Wow. So advocates like me have a better opportunity to kind of see how the data is playing out and um, going to be able to track it. It's been one of the hardest things being an advocate is kind of understanding what the trends are. But now we're a, we have a, a mandate from the state to figure it out. Great. Good work, Galen. Yeah, I know you and MassBike have been working on that. Let's talk about it next week. Totally. Yeah, I think it deserves a whole segment. I'll get excited and we can talk about it then. Perfect. This week, I've got an interview with with Metro Bike Share. You know, you wonder who the people are that are making sure that the bike share programs run effectively and safely. Well, they are trying to unionize. So I have on Jason France and Anne-Marie Drolet. And then I think, Galen, you're up after me, right? Yeah, I've got an interview with Lex Harvey. She's the uh, transportation reporter at the Toronto Star. And she's talking about winter biking, an article that she put out about riding in Toronto in the winter. Great. Seamus, what do you got? I have an interview with legendary state senator in California, Scott Weiner, who is known as a, a housing legend, but we want to get his take on bikes and transportation. And I'm interviewing him uh, with co-host Stacey Randecker. This is my, my second show on Bike Talk. Yeah. And here it is. Yeah. All right. I'm here with my co-host for the day, Stacy Brandecker, and we are here to interview legendary and iconic state senator Scott Weiner. Thank you for everything you've done in the state legislature. Truly an inspiration. You're known as this housing senator, but maybe you can just talk briefly about how you're going to approach transportation infrastructure this year. We I mean, we haven't finalized our legislative package. I'm, I'm not able to really announce much legislatively right now, so stay tuned. We are very focused on the fiscal cliff that our public transportation agencies are facing now as the federal COVID relief funds for transit agencies begin to run out in the next year or two, and ridership is still not up to where it was before the pandemic. And so our transit agencies are at severe risk of going into a financial death spiral. 
Uh, and so I am very focused on making sure that the state is going to backstop on what these agencies need to survive and thrive. And then we're also very focused right now on freeway removal and building on the successes that we've had in San Francisco around the removal of the Embarcadero Freeway and the northern part of the Central Freeway, where we've allowed new neighborhoods to blossom. And we want to build on that with some of the remaining freeways that are running through our city. So the freeway removal is, I love it. Are you looking to remove more? Well, what we've asked is for Caltrans to provide us cost estimates for what it would take to remove a few different freeway uh, sections, the remaining part of the central freeway, the northernmost part of the 280. And so those are what we're focused on, but got to start somewhere. Applause button. So in, in freeway removal, there's, there's, there are examples. I think I saw one recently from Korea, from Seoul, that looked amazing. It had been turned into a park. How do you see you know, how bikes fit into it? Well, when we talk about a sustainable transportation future, it means less driving and more other ways of getting around. That includes public transit, includes walking, includes all sorts of micro mobility, and and it certainly includes making it easier and safer for people to ride bikes. We have a transportation system now that is very biased against biking, vehicle code that's constructed and often in an anti-bike way. We also have not made the investments to have a truly safe bike network in the lion's share of the state. We want people to bike more and, and we should. It's more sustainable on so many levels and we have to make it easier and safer for people to do so. How do you feel about creating networks of no car, slow car, protected bike lane. Well, networks are very important because that's how you make it possible for people to bike in a seamless, expansive way. You have constant stops and starts in terms of a safe bike network. It's bad in general, but it also dissuades people from biking. And so in San Francisco, we've worked hard to try to really connect up our bike lanes into a connected uh, network. And you always have to have that big picture in mind of what the network is and how we build it piece by piece to get there. Why don't we have any in this state? Bikes just haven't been prioritized. Biking hasn't been prioritized in the state. And so we're way behind. I think in San Francisco, we're making progress towards the bike network. But even in San Francisco, we have work to do. The work that bike advocates have been doing for decades, you know, hardcore bike advocates yelling at people at community meetings, for, for decades, a lot of it is really starting to come mainstream and people are seeing bikes as a legitimate way to reduce vehicle miles traveled. They see as California goes, so goes the country, so goes the world in a lot of ways. And, and if we can do it here, then it's really a big achievement for humanity. Thinking of this sort of what I, I see as a historic moment in bike advocacy and, and you kind of coming from the LGBT community and really being a champion at this point, a person that people really look up to in many ways in various streams of advocacy. What do you think about where we're at right now? And do you think that this is a year where things will continue to change in a positive direction? Are we going to see these networks realized? What are the hurdles? Well, I think realizing the networks is going to require local and regional implementation. We're trying to create groundwork at the state level, funding and also through 
um, legislation, like for example, a law I authored this year to exempt these projects from CEQA so that they can't get gummed up with CEQA process and laws. We're doing a variety of things to try to make it easier, um, but but ultimately, it, you know, cities and counties and regional bodies need to prioritize doing it. That's where that final stretch of political will comes from. You can lead a horse to water, but the horse has to choose to drink. Who are the horses and who's deciding? Because cars are convenient, but they cause a lot of problems. And bikes and transit seem like the answer. And so I'm just confused why we keep spending so much at every level of government in terms of time, energy, money, on the thing that supports cars and not on the thing that supports the other modes. Yeah, I mean, that's very real that we live in a, a car culture in a lot of ways in California and our country, and we don't invest enough in sustainable modes of transportation like transit and biking and walking. And it's been that way for a long time. A lot of us would like to see that change. 80% of the federal gas tax goes to freeways and roads and 20% to transit. That's not enough. Some of the Republicans want to get rid of the 20% that goes to transit. State gas tax and our vehicle fees also just very overwhelmingly go to car-related infrastructure. Politics are not the best for prioritizing transit, biking, etc., because a large majority of the state really, really deeply relies on cars. So we have to keep working to shift the politics. And it's a hard road, I'll be honest with you. I have found myself talking about transportation from the perspective of, of a cyclist. But for me, it has been a gateway into the conversation to sort of understand a lot of the issues firsthand and like viscerally by, by riding around in Los Angeles. There's two questions like, where do you think the low hanging fruit is for getting these networks? But then also, um, do you see bike advocacy as a, as a nexus point? for broader transportation infrastructure policy discussions? It should be. I think historically there has been some silos within the sustainable transportation world by people advocating for bike infrastructure, pedestrian advocates advocating for walking infrastructure and so forth. It's all interconnected. We need to have great transit, great biking, and great walkable communities, and we shouldn't silo them. We all need to be advocating for all of them. That's incredibly important. But at what point is it the leadership's responsibility to say we're going in the wrong direction? If we want to have a state that still exists or a planet, we want society to continue on. Why do advocates have to fight if we know what's kind of causing the problem? I mean, you could ask that question in a, in a million different contexts. Why do gun advocates need to fight for gun safety laws when it's so obvious? Why do LGBTQ activists have to fight for equality when it's so obvious that we should have it? Why do Black people have to fight not to die when it's obvious that we should be valuing Black lives? I wish we lived in a utopia where we didn't have to advocate and that leaders just automatically did the right thing. But that's the world we live in, that we care about something and we have to fight for it and make sure we elect people who get it. That's why elections are incredibly important to put the right people in office who don't have to be persuaded because they get it. Unless we reach perfection there, advocacy is going to continue to be incredibly important. And advocacy is an important part of democracy. It's a way for people to engage. I'm looking for the applause button right now. 
it's true. I yeah, and I'm glad you put it in. You framed it in that context. One of my favorite quotes I've, I read of yours, I think you said, "We should always be building rail." No, we should always have a subway line under construction. Yeah, do you do you feel the same way about you know bike lanes or yeah, like- and rapid bus lanes? We should just constantly be expanding these systems to make them better and more comprehensive, so that people can use them. I mean, we, you know, it's not enough to tell people not to drive. You have to give people viable options. There's some people who are always going to drive and it's okay, but there are plenty of people who drive that if they had other options, they would either reduce the amount of driving that they do, or they, they might give up their car entirely. It wouldn't take that big a percentage of drivers to reduce their driving or give up their cars, even a small percentage would have a pretty significant positive impact on our roads. I recently read Bicycle Race by Adonia Lugo, and she goes into communities where a bicycle is the only affordable means of transportation. And when folks are able to earn a better living and and, and adopt a new means of transportation, which is a car, it is a source of great pride. And I'm, I'm somebody who's going to support bike lanes forever, but I want to open the conversation to this position that telling a, a specific neighborhood, East Hollywood or Pacoima, some, some places in the Valley that are heavily Latino neighborhoods, that you guys are going to have this bike lane without engaging and without listening, or, or what is the correct approach, I guess, in, in a situation like that? How do we overcome you know real questions of equity? while pursuing what humanity sort of needs right now, we need to revisit how we get around. I, mean, I think sometimes there's a perception or some, some, some people seem to have a perception that like only white people uh, bike, and that's not true. A lot, an enormous array of kinds of people in different communities and different income levels are biking. And, and so I think that's really important to acknowledge. Um, and also to make sure that in bike advocacy, that all sorts of different kinds of people are engaged in that advocacy. And that it's not only certain kinds of people, that that all sorts of bicyclists are, are, are engaging in that advocacy. Because otherwise, stereotypes are created and it becomes easier to dismiss advocates. It's something that happened, I feel, in the housing discourse. When we defeated Measure S in LA, there was this broad coalition that I think NIMBY groups were able to fracture and then co-opt some of the messages and some of the important points. And it became something toxic and corrosive to the conversation and to overcome that it's just it's required much more energy it's always a heavier lift it's it's a similar issue i think now that we're facing as bike advocates yeah i I mean i think that there are people who don't want to see any change and so they uh you know engage in a lot of different kinds of rhetoric and try to co-opt equity arguments when when they're really just conservatives who don't want to see any change and so they they try to you know, use language, sort of more progressive, equity-focused language when when their obstruction is actually the thing that's harming a lot of different communities. And and so I think it's important uh, to call them out on that. Have you seen um, Coach Balto, the no. PE teacher in at a middle school in Portland? And he has all these kids on bike bus. He's on all social media and he's just... Uh, 
it, watching these kids on bikes gets my heart all a flutter. And I was That's wondering great. how you feel about getting kids to ride bikes. Getting kids to ride bikes is incredibly important. As a lot of us did, I remember as a very, very young child learning how to ride a bike. And I think it's really great to start kids early. You know, I love it when I see families biking together because it creates sort of a, a groove, so to speak, for those kids early on. So they just view biking as just a regular way to get around, to get to school or to work or go shopping or whatever. Do you think we could do anything in terms of making school streets so that schools are a protected space. So at least that last stretch, you know that you're not going to run into any cars. We could make it easier for kids to bike. Well, we have a whole Safe Routes to School program where we fund projects to, you know, to make it safer for kids to walk or to bike to school. We do have those programs and that funding that exists. Local communities certainly have tools to be able to have that improved safety and also lower speed limits around uh, schools, for example. So yeah, that, that is really important. I guess it's the efficacy of it though. You know, I, I know that the program exists, but I just don't see other than bike to school day, kids yeah. actually biking to school. I think that we're on the cusp of changing a great deal, working on some of the um, like Caltrans projects, right? You really see it when the, the planning happened a decade ago, and now it's coming to fruition, like the Sixth Street Bridge in LA. It was like they planned that at a time where things were changing quickly, you know, and the, and the thought around these infrastructure projects had changed. Um, now it looks no like- protected bike lane. Right. I know, because when it was planned, yeah. it, we, we weren't there yet. Like in general, it was like the people who were shouting for those were a couple guys on bikes. And then it became something. And now it's like you have real built out advocacy. And I don't think that would happen now if you're planning that same bridge. If it started, the planning started now, I think it would be a much different um, project. So we have maybe one or two more. What is your bike joy and a recent past or reoccurring experience on a bike? So where is your bike joy? I don't own a bike. Um, <laughs> I primarily get around by public transportation. So I'm a transit guy and a walking guy. I do. Riding. You always had such a good looking bike on bike to work day. I usually borrow a bike for a bike to work day. So. Oh my God. Yeah, I had a guy down the street who had a big Danish bike that was big enough uh, for me. Not like you're an off-the-shelf kind of guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, I was looking for a picture of you on a bike to tweet that I was. We were interviewing you right now, and I found a good one. It's on. It's on Twitter. The, the one in drag with uh, Mayor Bowder. <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like biking a lot, and I've you know done it through my life. But yeah, I just don't. It's not my primary way of getting around is is muni. My image is just shattered. Well, he's definitely a bike advocate. I give him yeah. that for sure. And Sacramento, oh my gosh, can you help him up there? I biked around up there, and it was just like this is sad. They're playing catch up. I mean, they're doing a lot of street work up there to create more complete streets. So, but yeah, they're they have some catch up to do. We want to say thank you, and thank you. if you have any parting thoughts, thank you for your advocacy, and thanks for having me today. That was Seamus Garrity and Stacy Randecker interviewing California State Senator Scott Weiner. Next, an interview with bike share workers and 320 local union organizers Anne Marie Drolet and Jason France. Hosted by Taylor Nichols. I'm here with Jason France and Anne-Marie Drolet, who are bike share workers in Los Angeles and in Washington, D.C. 
Welcome, Anne-Marie and Jason to Bike Talk. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I wonder if you could give me a quick rundown on bike share. I see the bikes around LA all the time and bike share is one of the things that I do often when I am traveling, when I'm in Boulder, Colorado, New York City, Paris, France, Barcelona. I wonder if you can give me a quick rundown on what's going on with the Metro bike share here in LA. The ridership has actually been at record high levels, um, but I'll still hear people say that they don't really see people ride the bikes very much, you know, or do people even use the system? So we have a system in downtown LA. We have stations ranging from like Southeast downtown up to Koreatown. And then we have stations in North Hollywood. Right. So you jump over Griffith Park. <laughs> right. You take the subway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take the, uh, the red line. <laughs> right. The red line. Thank you. And then we have bikes on the West side as well. That spans from UCLA area down to Dockweiler beach. But the bike share in West Hollywood does not intermix with with your bike share, with Metro bike share. Is that correct or not? It does, but there's definitely a big disconnect. If you look at a map of where all the stations are, you can see all these bikes on the west side, you know, Culver City, Mar Vista, Playa Vista. And then yeah. you go to mid-city, fancier areas between uh, Koreatown and <laughs> Culver City, basically. Sure. And it's just a big lack of bikes. So that's a big thing that Bike Share wants to improve on. They want to connect the whole system, which has been a little hard because we have to deal with local jurisdictions and the LA Department of Transportation budget. Right. We're actually working on getting a seat at the table with like LA County council members and whoever we can get an audience with and try to figure out how to increase the connectivity, improve equity in the system and preserve these union jobs. <laughs> right? right. Yes. So yeah. trying to build a constituency for bike share in the county, I think is one of our kind of longer term projects. Well, can you tell us really quick, just so the listeners who, who maybe don't use bike share or are curious about it, how it works. You can rent a bike for 30 minutes. You can uh, rent it from the little kiosk at the station or you can download the app and it's $1.75 for a regular bike. Then I think a dollar more for an e-bike and those are way more popular <laughs> as yeah, you yeah. can imagine. Um, but right now they only make up about 10% of the fleet. So we've been building more. <laughs> and and e-bikes stocked at the same stalls as, as the regular bikes? Yes, they are. And so it's just it's just luck yeah. if there's an e-bike there. I think if you have the app, you can see which stations have e-bikes. But I feel really bad when I'm at a station and someone just assumes that all the bikes are e-bikes. <laughs> right. I have to break the news to them that right. <laughs> it's a manual is, bike. <laughs> is the first 30 minutes free or the first 30 minutes is a dollar seventy-five or what? First 30 minutes is a dollar seventy-five. And the big question that I always have for bike share is why isn't it free? I have wondered the same thing. And I know it's it's a lot more complicated than just having it be free. I wish I could answer that in depth, but um, I feel like that's been tried before in other yeah. cities and other times. And it was just a complete disaster in terms of like loss. I'm sure there's a way around that, but like Emory said, it's, she's a contractor. I'm a contractor where I work and you know, these are profit driven enterprises. They're not viewed as public goods. Metro is a public good though. I mean, you, I know you guys are contract workers for bike transit systems, mm -hmm. but Metro, the one who is ultimately paying for it, is a public good. Yeah, it's a weird relationship we have with Metro because bike share isn't really seen as part of the public transit system, which is a shame. Oh, it's such a mistake. Yeah, it's. I feel like it's kind of treated as an afterthought. 
Right. Um, right. Yeah, which is terrible because I think it's doing good things, but it, it has the potential to do so much more for people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the whole first and mile, that, last mile for Metro. And that's part of also like what we're trying to discuss, kind of like on the political end, you know, advocating for our jobs and for the system. And ultimately, I guess for BTS, also building a constituency of folks who treat it like public transit and public good. Right. 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 Which is which seems to be lacking a little bit based on some of our preliminary conversations. Right. For the record, I do not work at BTS. I work for a different bike share. I'm with the union, basically. You're trying to unionize bike transit systems and the other vendors who service Metro. We've established a union for bicycle transit systems and we're about right. to vote on our contract. Are the bus drivers unionized who work for Metro? I believe so. Yeah. So how come you guys aren't? It's a different company. Yeah. Can you tell me where you are in the unionization process? We've had our final bargaining meeting. We're hopefully later this month going to vote on the contract and ratify that. And then we'll successfully have our first contract. Great. Congratulations. It's all good. Collective bargaining is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you could tell me some of the, the juicy things that are in the contract. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot. Uh, I'd say the the biggest thing is the wage increases that we were able to negotiate. Um, they range from, I'd say, like 20 to 30 percent increase in everyone's wages over three years, depending on how much money you're making currently. That's a huge, <laughs> a huge win. Sure. Um, the wage increases have already started. So that's. Super exciting. Um, we were also able to negotiate sick time off, which we didn't have before. We only had paid time off, um, but now we have a separate five days of purely sick time. So I think that will <laughs> absolutely- Yeah, with COVID, I think that's, that's important. <laughs> yeah, definitely, because COVID is not going away anytime soon. Right. Some other, I don't want to say little things, but um, still exciting things. Uh, we got- eight weeks of paid parental leave up from six weeks. We have a commuter stipend for people who travel to work by bike most of the time. Love that. And that's something the company already offered, but we were able to increase the amount we got from 30 to $40 a month uh, for bike parts and then expand that to any safety item that people need to get to work safely. That's a big issue. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Especially when you work for a bike share company. Yeah, yeah. It'd be nice if we could safely bike to work. We negotiated more fair scheduling based around seniority. Um, We introduced a whole section on immigration. People can get protection in the case of issues with their immigration status or social security number, the right to use their native language when they're at work. Right. Uh, They can request interpreters if there's an investigative interview. A lot of little things that will will protect people um, if that happens. Paid citizenship holiday. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, overall, just a lot more worker protections. Um, so if there's technological change, people won't immediately be fired because tech change is a very real thing that's happening. Has been affecting a lot of people, really, in in any job. Feels like anything can be, yeah, turned into a robot <laughs> these days. Yeah, yeah. Don't forget uh, just cause and the grievance procedure. Very important. Yes, that one is definitely very important. We can grieve the firing of employees so people just feel better protected at their job. Correct. Even if they do get fired. And then better safety measures where the onus isn't put all on the workers. That was an issue 
sure. it can be a very demanding and dangerous job, especially for people who are out there in the field. I, I can imagine people that are moving bikes around and loading bikes and, and on the streetscape. Uh, totally. Yeah. And I've experienced that. So I'm glad that we have these protections. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Those sound like really positive changes to me. And I'm glad that some of them are already being implemented. I think that means that the employer understands these are wise decisions to be moving forward with. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I felt like we had a positive relationship with them Good. after all of this. Jason, tell me what's going on in Washington, D.C. with your organization. I'm here in my capacity representing a local 320, which Anne-Marie has been a member of for about a year and a half since their ratification vote. The local is part of the TWU, Transport Workers Union. This local, despite the name, is a national local. We represent bike shares uh, all across the country, D.C., New York, San Francisco Bay Area. Detroit, so on and so forth, and LA. And uh, we have all those cities, three different employers. I am a employee at the operator out here called Motivate. I go to work. (laughs) In addition to that, I'm a shop steward. Uh, I serve on the board of the local and uh, I help with uh, organizing projects and getting contracts for our new system. You know, I see on Twitter and, and, and in other places like all this energy around like forming unions. Like mm-hmm. Starbucks and Amazon and so on and so forth. Right, right. Like we already did that and it was fantastic. What no one ever talks about is that after you win a union, you have to get a contract. <laughs> Otherwise, in my humble opinion, there is very little point in uh, winning that union. Vote, union. Right. And in order to get a contract, it's helpful to get a good contract that people actually want to vote for. You know, the process in getting a good contract and a good first contract takes a lot of patience and dedication. And this committee, I think, has exhibited a lot of both of those things. And I think we can say this first contract is better than the contract that I work under at Motivate that is in its third iteration. (laughs) And I'm a little jealous of what this committee was able to achieve. I might move out to L.A. I do like your city a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, are you bargaining with Metro? Who are you bargaining with? The company, BTS. Metro has very little direct. In fact, they have literally nothing directly to do with it. Yep, I work in a similar situation with, uh, I have a big corporate overlord, uh, Lyft, uh, pulling the strings on my direct employer. Can you explain to me and also our our listeners how the people who use bike share will benefit from you guys being unionized? Ooh, that's a question that no one has asked us yet. (laughs) Well, there you go. How will the users benefit? Yeah. I mean, I assume there's some knock-on effect of having happier employees <laughs> moving the bike Sure, around. better paid, better cared yeah. for employees. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, More stable work life. Yeah, it'll contribute to a bike share that's better taken care of and people who really care about the work that they're doing. If you feel valued and the dignity of your labor is actually recognized, then that'll be seen in the work we do. You know, there's a lot of turnover. We're not going to have a reliable system. Uh, there's not going to be much yeah. longevity. Turnover is a good point. Workplace that you're sure. invested in, you know. Right. And that'll make it better for the people who use it. Yeah, I would say I'm a little caught off guard by that because where I work, the compared to LA, the system I work in and others we have are very large and turnover is a huge problem. Right, I'm sure. Oh. People are coming in and out all the time. And I can definitely say that decreases the bike share customer experience for sure when it's just yeah, definitely. people come in and out. They don't really care about the well, well, anything that stabilizes the bikes on the street and, and the safety and the maintenance of the bikes and mm-hmm. you know moving the bikes from 
you know, the location where they are often dropped off at the bottom of the hill and taking them back up to the location at the top of the hill, you know, um, so to speak, would yeah. would make for a better end user experience. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want workers who who are yeah. good at their job and know what they're doing so they can totally. fix bikes and fix the station? Well, and at the end of the day, once you're done fighting the boss and get your union certified and everything, like we want to see the Amory's employer, you know, succeed, right? And continue to provide the service that people have come to know and in some cases rely on. You know, you could view it as a step towards building like a, a partnership. It's not just BTS alone trying to preserve the system. But right. now, you know, as a union, you know, we are somewhat, you know, allies in a sense and trying to preserve bike share in LA and make it better. Do you guys have any input at all in the infrastructure that the bike share program is living in, you know, meaning on the street, bike lanes and dedicated bike lanes and protected bike lanes or, or anything like that? Is, is that at all in your in your purview or, or not? It's not, but I really wish it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I a think we're starting issue. to have those conversations or hopefully can have those conversations in the future. Yeah. Where as a union, you know, we can help uh, promote these things. But yeah, I really feel like bike share and and our union could be a tool in the transportation justice movement as a whole. Oh, my goodness. We want to have accessible bikes and accessible stations that everyone can use that are reliable, you know, and good quality in that. Right. And especially in our under underserved neighborhoods, you know, where they may not have the mass transit or they may not have multiple automobiles to take everybody to their separate jobs. You know, I mean, yeah, a, yeah. a bike, a bike share could be a, a huge thing in certainly the first mile, last mile with mass yeah, transit. Definitely. Yeah. And you, and you can't really just slap a station anywhere. You also need the infrastructure for it. People need to be comfortable riding in those areas and, and they need to feel safe. So totally yeah, the bike all, lane all or a protected bike lane. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, so tell me what's the next step. Voting on the contracts. And when um, is that? Our goal is by the end of the month. So end of January. Yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. Because <laughs> it's, it's definitely been a long process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, we just, we want to build more political support around bike share and around the union and reach out to more political leaders and community groups and build partnerships there and relationships there. Because I think we could really have far-reaching impacts in LA and right. in these neighborhoods yeah. that we want to serve. As a shop steward of seven years, and you want to start enforcing the contract, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> the bosses don't do this stuff by themselves a lot of times. They got to yeah, yeah. a dead letter without good reps on the floor. Yeah. Right. I look forward to the vote and I look forward to you guys getting unionized. And I look forward to you know, bike share being a bigger part of LA transit, anything that gets people out of their cars and allows them to under their own power or the power of an e-bike, you know, run their errands or get to and from their work, I think is a very positive thing for the city and the climate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Can I plug the local real quick? Cause we're still growing. Totally. If you work at a bike shop, bike share anywhere in the country, LA County, LA, California, anywhere, uh, and you're interested in forming a union, uh, you can go to www.pwu320.org and contact a, an organizer, i.e. me, <laughs> and uh, we can talk about getting started. Thanks okay, can you say that one more time? Was that Transport Workers Union? So TWU320.org. 
320.org. And that's for anybody who wants to unionize at a bike shop or a Any bike share? Any alternative or... transportation. Scooters, anywhere you're listening to this in the United States. <laughs> Great. Jason France and Anne-Marie Drolet, I really appreciate you staying up late on a Friday night and doing the interview and all the work you're doing for Bike Share and all the work you're doing for workers across America. I'm a Pete Seeger fan, and I believe in, in unions. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Fantastic. Thank you. You're listening to Bike Talk. Those were Bike Share workers and union organizers Anne-Marie Drolet and Jason France, hosted by Taylor Nichols. Now, an interview with Lex Harvey who wrote the article for the Toronto Star titled Toronto's Winter Cyclists Thrill to the Chill, but the city's snow removal leaves them cold. Massachusetts Bike Coalition Executive Director Galen Mook has the interview. Welcome to Bike Talk. We have with us Lex Harvey. She's the transportation reporter for the Toronto Star, who recently just put out an article a couple weeks ago about winter riding and some of the challenges and successes that the advocates in Toronto are facing. Thanks for joining us, Lex. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me. So you've been at the Star for a while now. You're about half a year or so into the transportation reporter role. Just a quick background. What is it like being a transportation reporter for a major city's newspaper? It is very busy. There's definitely no shortage of things to focus on at all times. And a lot of the job, I think, is kind of cutting through the noise. I think as with many major cities, everybody has their own preferred way of getting around and it can be very political. We have cyclists, of course, pedestrians, drivers, people who ride public transit, and they're all kind of trying to carve out their own space in the city. And so a lot of my role, honestly, is just trying to listen to everybody and try to best represent the issues here. And as I mentioned, cut through the noise a little bit. Yeah, I dig it. We talked very briefly earlier, and you mentioned you've been living in Toronto or Canada, Montreal, almost your whole life. How do you personally get around Toronto? So I've always lived relatively downtown. I've never owned a car. I can drive, but I don't do it very often. So I largely walk. I also have a bike, so I get around that way, or I take our public transit system. But yeah, walking, I would say, would be my main form of transportation these days. Cool. Always like to ask, always like to get a grounding on the lived experience of some of our reporters out there. So I'm fascinated by this article you're writing about basically the winter riding of a year-round cyclist in Toronto and a little bit about snow clearance. I wonder if you could paint a picture for a radio audience of what this issue was and why you decided to dig in. Sure. So I started thinking about this idea. We were brainstorming good content for over the Christmas break and the types of topics that are pretty timeless and not necessarily pegged to a news hook. I think as many journalists would know that week between Christmas and New Year's, there's not many people on staff. And so there always is kind of a rush for content. So I had this idea about winter cycling, kind of focusing on challenges related to winter cycling in the city, but also tips for people who might want to get into it. And so I initially put out a call on my Twitter feed saying any avid winter cyclists out there who want to chat with me, reach out. And I was really blown away by the response. So many people were just so enthusiastic, had all these great ideas. I got dozens and dozens of responses to my tweet and DMs and emails and many more than I even have a chance to speak to or respond to. So that was really exciting and kind of a fun way to start this. 
Yeah, I live in Boston and we have a similar kind of fervent winter cyclist push. So if the city's transportation reporter says, who wants to be interviewed about being a winter cyclist? I'm sure that the floodgates would open. People love talking about one, the challenges, but also kind of how they overcome the barriers so that they can uh, persevere, maybe is the word I'm thinking of. For sure. And someone I spoke to said that I thought was so true is that bike people always want more people to bike. I think (laughs) drivers would probably prefer that less people drove because (laughs) traffic is a big issue right now in Toronto. But cyclists are kind of this club that they just want everyone to come be a member. So that makes quote unquote bike people a really great community to speak to. Cool. I love that you say that. I think we have a similar sense here in Boston. I've been in the city for a little more than 20 years or so. And I agree. It's like there's this idea that if you see another cyclist out there, you're like, oh, we're in this together. And then it's been a growing population, a growing community. So I'm glad to hear the same happening in Toronto. Yeah, completely. One thing that also really made me want to pursue this article is that we saw like a huge boom in cycling over the pandemic. The boom has really lasted even as things have reopened. So this past summer weekday cycling volume in downtown Toronto was more than one and a half times what it was for the same period in 2019. So that's a pretty significant increase in people who are are cycling to get around the city. And one of the things I was curious at looking at is how does that hold in the winter, but also how could we capitalize on that momentum and make it hold in the winter by making Toronto a friendlier cycling city and, and asking people for ideas? I love it. So not to make you so much of an activist journalist, but is it worth saying that part of the reason for this article was to inspire others to really keep riding all winter long? Yeah, I think going into it, I think cycling is wonderful and really important looking in terms of our future of meeting climate goals and thinking about how we get around cities. But I had not really thought much about winter cycling. I think I fell into a pretty large camp of people who think Toronto can have pretty gnarly winters. And I don't know how fun that would be to get on my bike and be freezing cold, trudging through the slush and snow. So I hadn't really had like any strong convictions about winter cycling. But then I have to say from speaking to people, I really found their enthusiasm about this infectious. And, you know, not only were people saying that it was a lot easier than they had anticipated, also that there was kind of a magic to it. The bike lanes are quieter in the winter. There's less people cycling. And people were describing the feeling of flurries falling and the quiet and the peacefulness and whizzing by cars stuck in traffic. And I have to say that really made me even more inclined, I think, to try it out this winter. I love it. I'm so glad you brought that up because I wanted to actually read a small quote from your article, if that's okay, because mm-hmm. I found this very poetic, frankly. Oh yeah, I know the one. <laughs> go ahead. Do you want to read this paragraph or do you want me to? No, no, go ahead. But okay, I think it was it's... the thing that someone told me about winter cycling that was just such a, a lovely yeah, it's, thing. It's so good. <laughs> and if I wasn't already riding in the winter, this would make me ride. But this is a quote that you have from Andrew Dodd. You have in your article... The feeling of being in a flurry-falling wonderland, whisking by the red taillights of snow-slowed drivers, and feeling both in control of my commute and connection with its sights, sounds, and sensations, that had me hooked. And I think Right? Like, how amazing is that? (laughs) If I wasn't hooked before, I'm definitely hooked now. Yeah, you really put this in a very poetic term. Yeah, I mean, I can't take credit for those words, but... I would agree that that description just makes it sound like more than a way to get around, but actually like a real experience that everyone should try. Totally. I mean, yeah, not your words, but it's your article and it's your message that you're putting out. 
So switching gears a little bit, I'm curious about the logistics of what you're saying in this article. Can you share any particular tips or tricks that really stuck out that you really kind of felt you had to put in here? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say one of the main messages I heard from people is just that you don't need high-end gear or some kind of super technical equipment to try this out. I think there is a widespread perception and perhaps myself included maybe before I started speaking to people about this, but that only really hardcore people cycle in the winter and that you need the latest, fanciest stuff in order to do so. And people overwhelmingly told me that wasn't true and they're working quite hard to combat those notions and that most of the time, while Toronto is a very wintry city, like most of the time these days, there isn't a ton of snow on the ground and that you can get away with doing it with just your basic winter equipment. So that doesn't mean that you don't need to dress for the weather. But in the same way that anyone who lives in a cold city would have a winter coat and a hat and mittens, that that's something you can also wear cycling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good reminder. I think one of my favorite tips is, well, other than Boston, where plastic bags are now banned, which is good for an environmental standpoint. But back when I was a poor college student, one of my favorite tips was if it starts to come down on a little bit of sleep, Swing into your closest CVS and grab a couple of plastic bags and put them over your hands and put them over your shoes. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I guess the high tech version of that would be pogies. Is that what they call them? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The handlebar, the, the handlebar gloves. Exactly. Or the booties for your cycling shoes, which I don't go that far. I'm curious about how the city itself does snow clearance, because I think that's one of the biggest things we face here in Boston is we have great cycling infrastructure but then when the snow comes down, usually that becomes snowbank and it can be snowbank for multiple weeks at a time if the melt doesn't occur. Do you get something similar in Toronto or how is the infrastructure, especially when you have several inches or feet of snow that you're content with? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the infrastructure, it's definitely improving and partially triggered by the pandemic and just a rethink in, in how we use our streets. We have gotten a lot more protected bike lanes. But I would say on the whole, the city is still lacking in terms of having good cycling infrastructure and not where it needs to be. There's definitely a lot of areas to improve to make the city easier to cycle and also safer for cyclists. That's a big issue here. And then in the winter, it does make things harder because, as you mentioned, we're not really prioritizing bike lanes for snow removal in a way that would facilitate easy winter cycling. And as you mentioned, especially with the non-protected bike lanes that are just painted on the streets, when it gets really snowy in the winter and cars are driving, snow kind of just gets pushed into those bike lanes or maybe businesses who are shoveling their sidewalks are dumping snow into them. And so it is really common to see a street with cars and then there's the area where there would have been a bike lane, but now it's just piled with snow. Um, snow removal and particularly unreliable snow removal is definitely one of the main barriers to winter cycling in this city. Also, Toronto, as I would imagine, Boston does too, kind of similar climate, has a lot of freeze and thaw cycles. Yeah. And so that can be a huge problem if there's snow on the ground and then it thaws and then it freezes before it's cleared, then we have this ice that's really hard for people to cycle over. So that's definitely a big challenge. Yeah, 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 totally. I like to call it the three barriers to winter biking that I've had to overcome. We've been the cold, the dark, and the wet. And I think the cold is usually easily modified and combated with layering. And the dark, you just need extra lights, extra reflectors. 
but the wet has always kind of been the challenge for me. It's that sleet or that just almost freezing rain that comes down that you really just get stuck in. And I think that's the biggest deterrence for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Have you looked into the city Olu much in Finland? Oh, no. Tell us more. There's this great video. I'll send it to you. They made this great video just talking about busting the myth that the reason why most people don't cycle year round in Toronto is the cold. And Oulu is a city in Finland that's hailed as the winter cycling capital of the world. And it gets really, really cold there. It's in Finland. So it has a kind of subarctic climate. But 12% of trips there during the winter are made by bike. Wow. So that's a lot of trips. And more than half of trips to universities and schools are done by bike, even in the winter. And that's basically because they have this really incredible network of bike lanes that are plowed at a higher priority than lanes for cars. And so I spoke to someone who cycles there a lot, and they said that it makes sense to cycle there year round because they've made it safe, they've made it easy, and they've made it fast. And so that was something that I found really inspiring in terms of looking at how other cold cities can really level up in the winter. Interesting. Do you have interest in doing some investigative journalism, perhaps, and heading out over and seeing what other northern cities do in order to kind of tackle the same issue? If my newspaper would like to sponsor me to go to Finland to write about this, then yes, of course, I would be there. (laughs) Um, If they're tuning in, Toronto Star, please send your reporters abroad. There's information to be gleaned out there. (laughs) Yeah, but at least in the meantime, we have cool videos like this one. Maybe you can put it in your show notes. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. Because I think that this episode could also be an inspiration for those of us who are least listening in the Massachusetts-based we also are a bi-coastal podcast, so we broadcast terrestrially out of LA as well. So I imagine that much of this talk will not necessarily resonate with those unless they're taking their trip to Tahoe or whatever. But yeah, I guess- Yeah, they probably have an easier go. time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They have other challenges they have to overcome. Yeah. Uh, when speaking to cyclists for this story, most of them said, in fact, the main barrier to winter cycling is really just the main barrier to cycling in general in the city, which is that we can always be improving our infrastructure and making things safer mm-hmm. and faster and more reliable. Is that coded also to say maybe the dangers of traffic are a year-round danger? Yeah, absolutely. I was just looking into this a bit today, but Toronto has pledged onto the Vision Zero plan. Oh, um, good. I believe Boston yeah. has too, which is yeah. for mm-hmm. listeners that might not know, it's essentially like a global campaign to completely eliminate traffic-related fatalities and serious injuries. So that's something that we have seen a little bit of progress on. It's a bit hard to tell at this point because the pandemic has kind of skewed the data with less cars on the streets over the past couple of years. But safety for cyclists and for pedestrians is still a really big issue year round. Yeah, I'd be interested. That's a whole other topic that I'd love to dive into. So if you want any touch points on how it's been going in Massachusetts, we have a statewide campaign to do Vision Zero here. And we call it a safe systems approach where it's everything from the engineering of the infrastructure to the education of all the road users to the laws regarding enforcement. And it's a cultural shift that we're trying to seek, not necessarily just a one-stop shop. You put a bike lane in, it's not necessarily the solution, you really have to think of it as a systems approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of North American cities were just built to prioritize cars. And that's something that's hard to get away from. But hopefully, bit by bit, with more awareness and with changing up our infrastructure a bit, that can change. Yeah. 
Yep, yep. Well, with getting the press on the side of sharing multiple modes worth of point of view, actually, is a very important aspect of the movement. So we're grateful that you're out there. I'm curious, maybe it was my last question for you is what was the reception of this article? Did you get feedback? Did you get the bike haters? Did you get people who are saying thanks to people who are saying these riders are crazy? I'm curious. Granted, this is right before New Year's, the slow news cycle, but did this get some uptick? Yeah, I think as with most things I write about, you have the people who are like, yes, thank you for doing this. I'm totally on board. And then you have people who are like, well, I barely have enough room to drive my car through the city and cyclists get enough. And Mm -hmm. someone emailed me saying they should stop whining. I thought that was a funny one. People will get worked up about anything. But I think generally the reception was good and similar in the way that when I was searching for people to speak to with this, It really struck me how there's all different types of people who cycle year round and who are part of this community and people who do it to get to work or families and people who do it to get to school, people who do it for fun or for exercise. And so I think it's something that's really inclusive. Cool. That's wonderful to hear. Mm -hmm. And again, I think having the press really showcase the possibilities of better cycling really does go a long way. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks to Lex Harvey, who is a transportation reporter for the Toronto Star, for joining us here on Bike Talk and for focusing on winter riding in Toronto. Lex, you stay dry and warm out there, okay? Thank you so much. That was Galen Mook with Toronto Star journalist Lex Harvey. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Lindsay, Taylor, Seamus, and Galen, and Kevin Burton for editing. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get ya. Hot started, push on a pedal, push it down, and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals.